0: I'm actually recording the audio stream before I press the buttons on, like, streaming on Twitch and stuff, so go me. Hooray! Okay, uh, let's, let's go get started in a second. Let me just grab my headphones. I just really wanted to take a second and celebrate the fact that I remembered to uh, do the audio separately. We're going to start in, like, 10 seconds. I guess uh, less than 10 seconds. Here we go. Are we ready to do this? All the ducks in a row. We're recording and I even have the audio done go me. So delightful. Yeah. <sighs> How you doing? How's everybody? We good? We're surviving? We're managing? We're we're coming through the day all right? It feels like it, I was talking to somebody this morning. They 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 said that today feels more like a Thursday than anything else. Like yesterday was a week long. And at the time I didn't really think about it. And then today started and good grief in the morning. It really does feel like a Thursday. It really feels like we've had a week worth of a week already. And, uh, yeah, just, yeah, crazy. So, Musicless once again, but this time I've got audio running, so I don't have to worry about the podcast feed and, and we can just, we can just start. We can just do things like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, sex workers, anybody who enjoys a good candy bar. People who uh, are get really excited when you like find a sock that you thought you lost, but really it was just stuck in the back of the dryer. Anybody who's uh, made the disastrous decision to sit on social media late at night. Anybody who understands that sometimes you got to put the phone down and not chase that dopamine for a few minutes. People who like to staple things. People who like sauces on their food. Anybody who can appreciate not dry fish, Uh, people who are hydrated, Uh, just a general sense of anybody who who likes office supplies, and most importantly, the comrades. This is the Writer's Chat for February the 6th. And uh, through no fault of my own, I continue to be John, the guy who's going to help you write better. Hi. And uh, today what I've got for you is uh, a handful, 13 plus more possibly 13 questions, uh, from all corners of social media, all about different writing, editing, marketing, and doing things with words. Uh, in addition to that, it's the questions from anybody who's in chat. Hi chat. How are you? Hello, YouTube in the future. If you're watching this later when this goes up on YouTube and you have questions for a future chat, leave them down as comments below. And don't forget to like, and subscribe because that's what makes YouTube, you know, like me. But if you have questions, leave them as comments, and I'll get them in a future chat, I promise. And if you're watching this for the first time, hi, if you're a long-time person who's been checking this out, hello, it's good to have you back. That said, there's some, there's some really good questions today. I'm really excited about this. I love this. This is my favorite part of the week. I look forward to this almost as much as I do working with people. So, shall we get started? Shall we do this thing? Yeah, let's give it a shot. Let me just grab my handy dandy list of questions. Question number one, how do I avoid a mirror scene in my first 30 pages? Do we know what a mirror scene is? We're familiar with the term? A mirror scene is the uh, is that idea where like your character has to stop and look in some kind of reflective surface in order to provide the reader a reason to describe them. Like, I look in the mirror, and I see my hair, and here's my eye color, and this is what my face looks like, and then I I move on. And you don't have to do that. Like, that's a choice you can make, and it's okay if that's how you've been introducing your characters, but understand that it's not necessary to do that. Um, One, because you don't ultimately always need to know what your character looks like down to, like, every last inch of face or body. Two, um it doesn't all have to happen all at once three it certainly doesn't have to happen under the the forced context of hey look a mirror i will go stare at it and in in general like you you don't have to start everything with a fucking introduction i know that swearing makes you know the youtube and the twitch occasionally cranky so um fuck it the point is you don't have to do it that way. Like it it doesn't need to be done. You can, you can roll out details of the character over time, or you can just have your character know what they look like and mention it periodically. Like I ran my hand through my insert color of hair here and then move on. There's this strange thing that happens when I talk about this, because this should be a really simple thing. This should be a really straightforward thing. Obviously, you don't need to do it all the same way. But some people get really, really cranky about it. um, Because they think, oh, well, the reader expects this. The reader needs this. The reader doesn't need diddly squat. The reader wants to have a good experience reading this book where they imagine what's happening and they play a movie in their brain. But they don't need the scene to look a certain way or be a certain thing or do a certain thing. That's just not um that's just not a thing you don't need to do that there's no reason for that it doesn't help anything so how do you avoid a mirror scene um aside from the the obvious answer of don't write one the the other way around it is take that information that you would have dumped all into one thing one paragraph one scene couple pages whatever in one spot break it into irregularly shaped pieces because you don't always want it in uniform, you know, sameness. Break it into pieces and then sprinkle those pieces elsewhere in the book when it makes sense to bring them up and understand that, well, sometimes it's just not going to come up. Sometimes we're just never going to find out what color eyes a character has. Oh, well. we we'll deal. And then on we go. It, it doesn't need to be this sort of like, ah, like we're waiting for a bus. Oh, it's, 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 uh, it's 1.35, I'm on page 8, I better find out what hair color they have. It, it, no, no, not at all, not at all. So don't don't overthink this. It doesn't have to be a thing. It's not a requirement in any genre or in any kind of story construction, no matter what. No matter what. On we go to question two. Question two, where I'm probably going to lose some segment of the audience. Why do people care so much about newsletter headlines and sub-headlines? Okay, here's some context. Over on a platform like Substack or Medium or something like that, there are little conversations that happen constantly. I get alerts for one, like on an almost hourly basis of people getting together and asking questions about, oh, hi, I'm a new author. I, I have a, a thing I'm writing, and, and what about this for my headline? What about this for my sub-headline? And I've had people critique my old blog and even some of my, my sub-stack stuff now where they're like, what kind of headline is that? What kind of title is that? It's a title I wanted. It's, it's what I wanted to say. One of the, see, here's the thing and and this is this is something worth paying attention to people have this idea that stuff should conform or look a certain way in order to be a taken seriously b kind of fit in with everybody else and and c uh, do well whatever i'm making air quotes do well whatever that means as if you have to produce a thing of a certain kind like we're making widgets at the widget factory and if if there's one point I really want to get across to anybody listening to this at any time, uh, we are not making widgets at the widget factory, and we are instead making art. Our art includes words and paragraphs and pages and scenes and concepts and discussions and emotional connectivity and emotional intelligence and thinking and feeling and abstraction and philosophy and dirty, dirty sex and good sex and clean sheets and pets and dialogue and humor and puns and a whole set of punctuation. Tons of stuff. It's not supposed to look like everybody else. And it shouldn't. And your first thought shouldn't be, gosh, I need this to look a certain way, because that's going to tie your hands down the road. We don't need it to look like everybody else. We just need to express ourselves. But there's this, there's this camp, there's this idea, there's this little cottage industry about, hi, I run a thing and I help people write better. And I, I don't even mean like me. I mean like I help people make newsletters that are successful. Sure, capitalist bootlicker, what does successful mean? They get people to read and subscribe, and that sounds very nice. But if you think that somebody is subscribing to your stuff based solely or primarily on the headline you give it, that's sort of like um somebody's gonna buy the book in your book report based on the title. That's not that's not the the big thing that makes everybody care. It's the content, it's the stuff beneath the headline, it's the it's the text you wrote, it's the whole thing. This 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 notion of like it has to look a certain way is is just like um it's the text equivalent of you have to eat your vegetables before you can leave the table. And it it doesn't Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. No one cares, but people care a lot about this because they want to fit in. They want to be successful. They want to look a certain way. They want to follow the herd. And, um, do you need a headline? Yes. Do you need a sub headline? Sometimes it's usually a good idea to help emphasize a point you're making, but to try and produce like the most optimized, that's a big word they like to use optimized or ideal or Right. Headline for a thing is way overthinking an idea, like way, way overthinking. It It's not about conformity to some kind of unspoken or barely guessed at algorithmic response or anything like that. It just, you don't want to waste your time doing it. Just label it something that makes sense and that creates some kind of interest, even if it doesn't directly completely like, oh, I'm, I'm going to talk about X for 10 paragraphs. So here's a headline specifically about X. Like, it's okay. If you wander a little off the beaten path, it's, it's really fine. Even if somebody's brand new, who's never seen your content before, it's, it's a headline. It's a sentence ish, maybe two at most. Just write something engaging, independent or separate from topic, and, and, and you'll probably be okay. Now, if you're trying, if you're wondering, well, John, they care about headlines and subheadlines because they don't know how to be interesting, um, shenanigans, shenanigans. People can be interesting. You can be interesting in a sentence. Right now, while you're listening to this or watching this, say an interesting sentence about any fucking thing, anything. Uh, what did you have for lunch today? What did you have for breakfast? What did you do last night? Was it fun? Did you enjoy it? Why did you like doing that thing you were doing? Can you say that in a sentence? Hey, that's an interesting sentence. Look at that. Doesn't need to be formatted a certain way. Why would we assume that? Let's not assume that. Let's instead just focus on this idea that you can have a headline or a subheadline of whatever you want, of whatever length you want, for whatever purpose you want, if you want to have them at all. Because the goal is to get people to... Care about what you're saying and connect with them, and headlines and subheadlines are one way to do that, not the only way to do that. They're not even the best way to do that. It all works together in in a in a symphony of things: headline plus subheadline plus maybe picture, depending on what it is, and opening paragraphs, and then pacing, and then tone, and then voice, and then structure. Like lots of stuff come together here. It's not all on the headlines or the subheadlines. It's not a thing to sweat as much as people love to sweat it, but of course, if I were making thirty nine dollars a person, yeah, I would totally sweat it too but that's 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 a whole separate discussion, probably for a whole separate day. on we go question number three: why do people think they're done done is in air quotes when they're writing a novel and they reach sixty five thousand words, okay. We have to have a, a talk now about expectation and, and, and estimation. A lot of people who have not written at length before or exhibited like the the skills or the, the rigor of writing, 65,000 words to them is a hu- I mean, it's a big number. It's a big number. And it took them some amount of time and maybe they struggled with it. Maybe some days they didn't write, and maybe other days they did. And some days they wrote very, very little maybe like 10 words or that's about it. And other times they wrote like a couple hundred or a thousand maybe. And it, it came and stops and starts and it was frustrating and fun and easy and difficult and annoying. And you know, all these different feelings and all these different things and getting 65,000 of anything together is really tremendous and worth celebrating. But the problem is 65,000 is the, the shallowest of shallow ends for long form text. You still got to get to 70. You got to get to 80, ideally, to at least start swimming in waters where you can look at traditional publishing sources. And, and for that, people, people they, they look at 80, for instance, and they think about zero to 80K as opposed to 65K to 80K. And with good reason, because to map a novel out that's going to be 80K or you're intending to have 80K means you need to have more substance to it. you got to think through that plot more, have a subplot, develop stuff, slow things down, expand on stuff. You've got to change the way you frame and structure a story because you're going to have more of it. And for a lot of people, that freaks them out because it's hard. It's really hard. So people hit 65 and it's, it's a huge number. Oh my God, I can't believe I got to 65. This is incredible. And it is, and that's fine. And and it's a big deal. But most people are also tired by the time they get there. They've done enough. It's, it's a lot. So they also stopped their story short because really they weren't planning on getting that far. So going any further just feels like they're stretching, they're starting to stretch the story thin because way back in the planning stage, they didn't do enough planning so that's why a story tends to fall out at 65. So there's, there's, there's these things called plateaus where a story idea tends to stall. And the first one's at about 5,000 words, and then 10,000 words is sort of the, the first major plateau or threshold to see, oh, the story still has, I, I, I know the story, I can take it in a direction. So you get 5, then 10, then right around 30, used to be 25, but I think 30 is a better estimation. 30 is that point where people are like, either the story is going too fast and I don't know how to slow it down and it's just going to be over really quick. Or it's taking forever or they feel it's taking forever when it's really not. And, and 30 feels like, a, oh, my God, 30,000 words. 50 is the next big one because you're halfway to 100,000 for my fantasy writing friends. And, and 50 for if you're aiming for 65, 50 is a big tipping point. You should be hitting the climax of the story if you're aiming for 65 when you had hit about 50 because you only got about 10,000 words left. And then the next one's at 65. And then most people, once they hit 65, provided they've done enough planning and structuring, they can get to 75, 80, 79, 82. They can get there with a little bit more pushing and a little bit more development. They don't have to stop and go re-engineer their second act or make sure they, you you know, add an extra character and build this other stuff up. They don't have to, like, bolt on brand new other stuff to cross that big finish line. And really, once you get past 80, you see a different approach. It's sort of like the end is in sight, so they gain this sort of second, third, fifth, 20th wind, and they push forward, and sometimes... You get this sort of uh, over enthusiastic overshooting, where they're aiming for like, okay, you're writing a romance novel, and you know you're right about, you're at, you're at You don't need that much more to kind of get it in that sweet spot that you need for traditional publishing. Self publishing doesn't really give a shit, but traditional publishing says you know eighty to ninety one, right? But people are like, oh my god, I'm almost there, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. I'll just keep going. And the next thing you know, they have like 96 because they're just enthusiastic about one more sex scene, one more this scene, one more wrap up, one more this, one more that. And uh, it really, it really becomes this issue of now you've gone too far. Now we have to trim. Now we have to pull back, slow down, pump the brakes and scale it back. But most people think they're done at 65 because they either A, only did about 65,000 words worth of planning or B, they're tired. And and they need a break. They need to stop, catch their breath, stretch, get up, move around, think about the story a little bit more, shape it, see where it's going. Sixty-five k is a big deal. It's a great number. It's a good benchmark number of hey, can I get here in a in a practice novel kind of way? But too many people think they're done because they've they haven't planned enough. It's a good question. It's a really good question. On we go. People in chat, some number of you, I, I no longer have an accurate count as to how many of there are, because last week when I was doing this, I had 11 people in here who knew. So hello chat folks. Um, I hope you're doing well. Anybody have any questions about anything? I am doing well today. Okay, hang on. Let, let me look at this question. What does word count matter in self-publishing aside from the obvious, like, big, giant super manuscript? Word count in, pub- in self-publishing matters a little, but not in the same way it does for traditional publishing. In traditional publishing, it, it's very much a budget decision. Because a certain number of words can be estimated to a certain number of pages, which is a certain amount of paper and a certain amount of ink. So it produces a book of a certain size, which means it's a certain weight for shipping. So it, it can be the costs of all of it can be figured out. There's also a social expectation of like all the other books in the genre are supposed to be this size. So yours better be too, which is dumb, but we all sort of still agree to it for some pointless fucking reason. In self-publishing, we're not really bound by any of that. You don't have to be. Some people still are because uh, the example I always give is like there's that story of the elephant with a rope tied around its ankle and it can only walk so far and then all of a sudden one day it gets the rope taken off, but it still only stays at that distance because it just doesn't know to go any further. Self-publishing doesn't have to follow those rules and it matters a little bit in the same way that like, I think a better example for this would be audiobooks. There's an idea that an audiobook of a certain size is more complete or unabridged or more detailed or bigger or better. I know I fall prey to this because I look for audiobooks that are at least eight hours long because I can listen to one over the course of a work day or on a weekend or whatever, or I can, you know, listen to it at the gym or whatever. And a longer book feels more satisfying and that's, that's, somewhat arbitrary. It's based entirely on just the production process. But there's that sense, that underlying idea of like, oh well I don't want to read a thing that's over and done in two hours. That seems that seems like a waste for the money I'm I'm spending on this. And the same is true with word count. Like a book that's too short like painfully too short. Like I had an expectation the book should be this size, just not even from like a publishing standpoint, from a reader standpoint. This sounds like a good story. I hope it, you know, I hope it's a, I hope it's a good size. I hope it holds my interest for X number of hours, days, whatever. And word count affecting the readership like that really isn't so much a, like a sense of, oh my God, this lady wrote this novel and it's it's 93 not 90,000 words gasp and horror it's it's more like giving the reader that sense of surety that ah you know this is a this is an appropriately paced uh, a well crafted comfortably sized story it's not like somebody tried to write 700,000 words in a mega giant fantasy novel. Cause they just could not shut up and get out of their own way. They just liked the sound of their voice and kept going and going and going because nobody told them to stop. And in self-publishing, it's more about what amount of words do you need? Not the bare minimum and not the mega excess, but what amount of words do you need to comfortably deliver the story to your reader? And Self-publishing is all about decisions because as the self-publisher, you're making all those decisions. So you get to decide, yeah, this story is 85,000 and that's, that's fine. It it can be that it's, it's okay. But mostly it's a consideration for the reader in self-publishing. As opposed to, I mean, obviously, unless you're getting like you're printing physical copies and you're going to ship them out to people, then we're right back in the traditional publishing bubble of how much is it going to cost for the paper? How much is it going to cost for the weight of the book? How much does shipping cost? Like as long if we're staying in that sort of digital idea of like everything gets delivered to a device, that, that word count becomes more an idea of expectation and packaging. The, the example I give in, in some meetings is like if you have a headache, right, and you go to your medicine cabinet and you take out two generic aspirin of unknown brand, right, um, you have an expectation that those two pills you're going to take are a certain size because it, how big could they – you know, like they're not the size of your thumb. That would be ridiculous, but there's a, there's a general expectation about how big they are, and when you see uh, like a pill that is the size of your thumb, you're sort of taken aback because, God, that's enormous relative to like the size of the problem I'm currently experiencing. So size and expectation play a big factor in self-publishing. I hope that answers the question. Uh, I am doing well. I'm going to tell you right now that there's an ad coming for the non subscribe folks, though I've been told to just assume everybody's subscribing, and we're just going to plow on ahead. I don't know what happens on YouTube with ads. Um, like I have no control over where those ad breaks are. I don't have, I barely have control over where the ad breaks are here, but, um, I, I don't really like, I don't, if you're watching my stuff on YouTube, cause I know it's long and it's long enough to, to, I don't get ads cause I, I'm not monetized yet cause I don't have enough subscribers and all that. But I don't know if ads are like, stable onto my shit without me knowing because I I pay for YouTube because I don't want to deal with ads. So that's something to really think about. But yeah, thank you for your self-publishing question. I really appreciate it. Anybody else? Anything? Hey, a first-time person. Hello, first-time person. Can all aspects of good writing be learned? Yes. Eventually, yes. I mean, it's not going to be an immediate thing. It's not like, I will learn everything Tuesday. I wish. But, yeah, you can learn everything. Sentence, grammar, page, structure, scene, tension, pacing, tempo, initiative, uh, the basics of self-copy editing, marketing strategy, pitching, platforming, dialogue—you name it. Yeah, you can eventually learn all the bits. It's the 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 factors that that make that tricky are uh, one somebody's dedication, two how hard somebody tries. Like, are we half-assing this attempt, or are we whole-assing this attempt? Or are we trying way too hard for reasons? And the level of instruction they're getting. Because you can pay through the nose for a lot of courses and a lot of classes and stuff that if we're going by their price tag, holy shit, they should be teaching you like a collegiate level thing. And then you find out that they're really just giving you like the same listicles you could get from Google, maybe with a different coat of paint on it. And you end up not feeling like you learned anything new or that you learned better application. You were just more informed about things. So, yeah, the the aspects of good writing, and again, good is subjective. There's always going to be some degree of subjectivity because it might be well written, you know, free of error or... Um, like sensible for the context, I guess, but you can, you can learn how to do every part of this. The The question is, will you practice it? And how long it will take you to learn it is not really rooted in anything other than your discipline and the quality of the thing being, and like how well it was taught to you. Because if I just throw terms at your face, whatever they might be, um, and then say, go Google them. Most of them you won't Google. Not because you're, you are you refuse to, but most of them don't Google easily. I just got asked uh, a few minutes before chat started, hey, can you recommend some books on line editing? And yeah, I can, but please note that most of the books for line edit, specifically for line editing, are either you got to get them secondhand or they're old and dated, like they're from the early 2000s. Because that's that's sort of the wheelhouse I draw from, and most of the time, the the current perspective and view on things is not it, it's not the same as it used to be. So it becomes harder to teach some of these things. But yes, uh, to answer that question, kind of bring it all the way back around in full circle, all the aspects of writing, all the aspects of of writing well, publishing well being a writer with a career, I do think they can be learned because I do think they can be taught though not always effectively in either regard. Like you can you can have a mediocre teacher and you can still be okay. And you can in fact exceed them because you will understand what they're trying to say better than their ability to say it. Or you might have a fantastic teacher who's who's really clear and really doing a thing and really making sense, but you might struggle if not you specifically person asking the question, but general you might struggle with learning it because it's just not clicking for you. but yeah, I think all aspects of good writing can be learned. I really do uh I wish if we're if we're if we're having a moment of like John level honesty. I wish more people would ask not so much like the, the broad question of what are the good elements of good writing? Because uh, it depends on what we're talking about, but I wish more people would pursue not so much the, the abstraction of it, but I wish more people would pursue like, how do I get better with what I have? Here's where I'm at. This is what I'm making. How do I make this better? How do I, how do I help me? with my, not in a selfish way, but like in an individual bespoke way. That's what I wish more people would pursue because I think that's a far more interesting space. What a great question you asked. Thank you so much. And thanks for being here, by the way. I really appreciate it. Other questions or shall we march on? Let's go. Question four, is there anything wrong with being a hobby writer? That's a a writer who just writes because they like it and they could, you know, take or leave publishing. They're not really thinking about publishing. They're just writing because they like writing. And just so we're clear, there is nothing, there are zero things wrong with just being somebody who writes and who isn't concerned with publishing. There's nothing wrong with that. You could just write because you like writing. Go ahead, have a good time. I think so often we get into these like, they're not even fights, they're like strange complaint offs or expectation offs where you're supposed to like monetize your, monetize what you like, hustle, hustle culture and grind, you know, like you have to make money at a thing because that's the only way you can adjudicate whether or not you're good at it. And I, I just think that's more harm than good. I just think that's so damaging. Because you you can you can like stuff and not monetize it. You should like stuff and not monetize it, frankly. You should like what you like and do what you do. And if you want to monetize it because you want to pursue it and see where it goes, great. You should have all the tools possible to succeed. And some stuff you can just do because you like doing it. And you, you would never want to change your relationship with that thing you like it, entirely because you want to ultimately monetize it because bringing that factor in, making it a a job because non-hobby publishable writing is a full-time job and not enough people like get their head around that. But um, yeah, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with being a hobby writer. If that's what you want to do, awesome. Kick ass at it. That doesn't mean you can't learn craft. It doesn't mean you can't ask questions. It doesn't mean you can't get better. All that really means is you're not going to publish. That's fine. You don't have to publish. Just learn to write the best you can because it brings you joy. It's fine. On we go. Question five. Can a hobby writer ever become a serious writer? I don't like the word serious in this question, but that was the question that was asked of me because there's this expectation or this idea, I guess it's not an expectation. There's this idea that if you're a hobby writer, if you're not going to publish, you must not be serious. I don't know why that, um, that that's like not a thing. Seriousness has to speak to discipline. Like, I'm going to sit down and do this, and here's a goal, and I'm going to try and accomplish it, and I'm taking it seriously. I'm not half-assing, and I'm not being, you know, I'm not looking to bail out on it every 10 seconds. I'm, I'm committing to do this. It's, it's, it's important to me. That's serious. That has nothing to do with, like, here's the education I have received, and here are the courses I signed up for, and here are the blah, 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 blah. None of that. It just has to do with your, with your focus and your work ethic and your discipline. And all those things are just as true whether you're going to publish or not. But if we're going to unplug the word serious and swap in the word publishable, yeah, there are some great hobby writers who could be published with minimal changes. There are some great publishable writers who could continue and just have a career as a a career, a non-monetized career. They could just go be hobby writers and be very happy. But this this nonsense idea that somehow you're not serious if you're just doing a thing you enjoy because you enjoy it is so harmful and so ridiculous. Yeah, hobby writers can be serious too. I'm really serious about cooking. I enjoy it. I find it meditative. I appreciate the technique. I like doing it. It interests me. I know a lot of people who work. In kitchens, who have owned restaurants, who are private chefs, you know i I like that culture, I like that community of people um i am I am just me, I am a hobby cook. I cook to feed myself period i i I'm not worried about making a living on a line or anything. I just do it because I like doing it. I'm serious about it. Seriousness and monetization are not the same thing and they shouldn't be made that way. So yeah, a hobby writer can be serious. On we go to question six. Do tags on Amazon books really matter all that much? Here's some context. Uh, Thursday, Thursday coming in in two days, uh, I'm talking about how to sell your book how to market it, how to get it off the ground, how to, what to do basically after you're done writing it. And Amazon tags comes up. Now here's, here are some facts you need to know. One, nobody, nobody anywhere knows the full scope and structure of the Amazon algorithm. And anybody who says otherwise is lying to you because Nobody knows the Amazon algorithm. I would argue that Amazon doesn't entirely know the Amazon algorithm. But one of the things we do know is a thing called interior searching versus exterior searching. Exterior searching is where we're coming from one website or coming somewhere else and we're just searching cold. That's where you go into the Amazon thing and you type in the box like, I need laundry detergent. Or you just go to your search engine of choice. I need, you know, give me five recommendations for good, I don't know, a good lawnmower. Those are exterior searches. you are coming from website one website or one thing and going to a website. Interior searches are the searches that happen within that website. So that could be you're on a blog and you're going through the blog archives. Or you're on Amazon and you scroll down a page and you look and see that carousel of like people who bought, Whatever the hell you just bought, also buy these five fucking things. Those are interior searches because they keep you on the platform. They keep you on the website. They keep you using and staying within the bubble of wherever you're at. Those tags like romance, contemporary romance, small town romance, military sci fi, space sci fi, space military sci fi, and all those other tags. They matter for interior searching. If you took those tags elsewhere, you might, might be able to spin them into vague tags, not even tags, vague phrases to help identify part of your marketing strategy. But they're not universal. They're just not. No matter how bad we want them to be, they're just not. So they, they matter for Amazon to help us sort and organize and prioritize and rank because Amazon's all about rank. Everything's a dick measuring contest, uh, at where your book falls among all the other books. But at the end of the day, uh, Amazon is one vendor. It's the big vendor. It's sucked up all the oxygen out of the other, out of everybody else. But, um, it's just one vendor and it's just one way to sell the book and tags, ultimately don't help sell the book. They help organize the book. They're sort of like those, uh, you know, those little labels you stick on like file folders where it's like, Oh, this is the medical folder. This is the receipts folder. This is the, the instruction, the folder where I fold all the recipes. Like they're just organizers. They're not mission critical statements. The argument gets made that, Oh my God, if you mess up your tags, Oh my God, if you mess up your tags, readers will never find your book. Um, no, that that's, that's not how that works because I can always look at other marketing, not on Amazon to find your book. Like if you, let's just make a hypothetical up to illustrate this, right? So let's say I follow you on, I don't know, blue sky and, and you drop a link to your Amazon book. I don't care what the tags are. I came because of that blue sky post or your Twitter post. Or you sent me an email with a newsletter or something. I don't care about your Amazon tag. I don't even stop to think twice about your Amazon tag. wouldn't even occur to me to scroll down that far to go look at your Amazon tag. It's not as big a factor as everybody makes it. But since social media needs to have fuel for the fire and grist for the mill, and tags are a thing we can control in a situation where we otherwise feel out of control, Tags. Holy shit. Tags are a big deal. We got to get this done right. It's fine. Don't, don't overthink it really. And truly don't overthink it, but no, they don't matter as much as everybody says they do. They really don't. Okay. Any more questions? Anybody? Shall we keep going? All right, let's keep going. Question seven. How do I know what is or isn't a bad habit if I've been doing it the whole time? I don't know if this is like an existential question or a writing question, but I'm hoping it's a question about like how do I know if I've been doing a thing that's a bad habit in my writing because I've always been doing it that way. This is one of those things where it's not really a bad habit until it interfaces or intersects with somebody else. Cuz if it, if you're just writing and there's there's no there's no readership waiting for it, there's no critique partner, there's no critique group, there's no editor, there's no pimp. There's no anybody. It's just you writing, you know, spending your time and the writing is happening. I would argue that from a make the writing happen perspective, it's not a bad habit. However, if we are trying to do something more or, or consider something more than just, I got to put words on this page. If we're trying to develop character, if we're trying to do more show than tell if we're trying to expand the visual for the reader if we're trying to lay a scene out if we're trying to work on something more concrete it might not be a bad habit if it's just what you're doing and you don't realize it but again if we had that feedback if we've had that that some you know somebody coming along going hey here's a thing to pay attention to all of a sudden your habit which previously wasn't bad has been identified and judged by one or both of you that it is bad because it's not doing the thing you thought it was doing. So if you've been writing, for instance, and and you've just been going along and it makes sense to you in your head, you know what you mean. But somebody points out that, you know, hey, most of your pronouns are really vague, but they're not vague to you because you know what you meant when you were writing this number of he's or this number of she's or whatever. You know what you meant, obviously. So... Why would it be a bad habit there? But because it's somebody else who doesn't, who's not in your brain, who doesn't have your information, that, that thing you've been doing that's been very comfortable becomes that bad habit. And hopefully they turn around and go, hey, your pronouns are really vague. Do you know that like it's going to reflect, it's going to go back and report to the nearest noun? So sometimes you mean one person, but it really, the sentence is framed and it's another person. Like they, they explain it to you. Then you get a chance to do something about it. So rather than hyper analyze yourself in a vacuum, like, oh my God, anything I could do could be a bad habit if I'm just by myself, which I guess is sort of the extreme, absurd way to think about that. Rather than think about, oh my God, anything could be a bad habit, I better not do anything, just do what you're doing by yourself. Go ahead. And then when it's time to bring in other people, be they critique partners, be they critique groups, be they writing coaches, be they editors, even hell, I guess, be they your pimp who's going to exploit your labor, let them be the ones who will adjudicate or assess or hopefully, ideally, assist you with the habits that need work. I'm not crazy about that idea of bad habit. It seems so... It seems so stiff, so, so much, you know, like sort of Damocles hellfire from the pulpit. Everything is disaster level bad because sometimes it's something simple like, hey, that's not how this thing of punctuation works or your sentences are too long or just hit enter and break up those giant paragraphs. But everything else is fine. Little things like that. I would not call them bad habits. I would just call them writing things that need to be worked on. Bad habits make it sound like they're actively detrimental and not really fixable. They're more like, oh, I've consciously decided to, you know, saw off my fingertips with a bandsaw once a week. That would be a bad habit because it's a decision and it's motivated by something and it's not, it's not benefiting you. But not knowing that you, you tend to use vague pronouns or not realizing that you've got a ton of run-on sentences and you throw commas around everywhere. That's, that's, it's only a bad habit if it's been pointed out to you and you don't do anything about it, but yeah, don't, don't panic. Just go get help. It'll be okay. I promise. On to question eight, what's the cliffhanger build cliffhanger build is in quotes. Okay. So we have to talk sort of like broad picture. The cliffhanger build is the idea. That uh, there is a certain way to structure either every chapter or certain chapters or certain moments of the story or whole stories if they're very short. Like there's a certain way to frame some amount of writing so that it always ends with a cliffhanger. And if we want, if we know this thing paragraph, chapter, scene, short story, whatever if we know this is supposed to end with a cliffhanger, we have to have that cliffhanger set up. In advance. Now, sometimes, honestly, this is as simple as having a sentence like, "We're going to literally have the story end with, you know, the character hanging out of a hanging off a cliff, right? Hanging by their fingertips." Sometimes it's as simple as establishing that they're on a cliff, and that they could, oh no, gasp in horror, hang from the end of it. Other times, you know, your your uh, your cliffhanger is something more. elaborate, like there's a shot that goes off in the dark and who could have been the killer? And we need to lay the groundwork or we want to lay the groundwork for that more methodically and slower. But again, sometimes it comes down to just a sentence here and a couple paragraphs later, a sentence there, and then maybe a sentence over there and at the bottom of that next page. A cliffhanger build is about creating a template, roughly, or a blueprint might be a better way to say it, a blueprint of progressively increasing tension or progressively making it aware that it will become possible to do what the unknown cliffhanger ending will be. I set it up because it has one, two, it has some number. There's no exact number, but there's, you know, I've got four things to tell you so that I can establish that we're going to hang by our fingertips at the bottom of the next chapter. Here are the four things, one, two, three, four. I've spaced them out accordingly to build tension. It's just a way of setting up that Oh no, what could happen? Dun, dun, dun feeling without, you know, all of a sudden dropping in on the reader. Like where the hell did this come from? It comes out of left field. It's just about laying out the idea to create tension. It's a very, so how do I say this? Some social media platforms, uh, picked up on this and described it in terms of like it's newness. Like this thing didn't apparently exist prior to like Tumblr and fan fiction forums, but the cliffhanger build has existed at least since film and radio serials a century ago even prior to that uh mid 1800s serialized storytelling in the US and prior to that you know european serialized storytelling half a century prior to that because a cliffhanger was designed to make us care so that we would go buy the next issue of the periodical or the magazine or the booklet or whatever to keep us hooked, to keep us reading. That's how comic books work. That's how episodic television works. That's how radio drama works. That's how podcasts sometimes work. The cliffhanger build isn't a new thing. We're just seeing it in new permutations. But it's just a setup to make the ending have maximum impact whenever that ending comes around. That's all. On we go. Question nine. What's the biggest problem people face in writing a romance novel? I need a mouthful of water for this because there, there's we've got some options. All right. Option number one. People don't plan it out. They know that, oh, I have to have this, and like I have to have a meet-cute, and I have to have a conflict, and then I have to have a resolution. And they don't really, they, they under-engineer, let's say. Or, this is particularly true of the hashtag writing community people, they over-engineer. Engineer. That's option number two. I need a meet cute and I need a reflection scene. And I need a want scene. And I need a first intimacy scene. And then I need a second intimacy scene. Then I need a date scene. Then I need a getting to know you scene. And then I need a tension scene. And then I need an introductory plot scene. Then I need a development scene. Then I need another date scene. Then I need a conflict resolution scene. Then I need a new climax scene. Like over and over and over, there's always a name and always a label and always a tool and always a this and always a fill in the blank. And it becomes this inorganic presentation of stitched together stuff, like a patchwork quilt. Here's a box of this, here's a box of this, here's a box of this, here's a box of of that, as opposed to one fluid expression of a story. Third option. They overwrite the hell out of it, meaning a romance novel, particularly of person meets person, they fall in love, and it goes from point A to point B. There's only so much of that story that you can really get across because that's all it is. We have them meet, they experience some difficulty or challenge, then they decide what they're going to do, and the story's done because, presumably, you know, if the story were to continue hypothetically, they would move in this trajectory. The end, happily ever after or not. Some people love to never end it, they just keep writing oh, I don't, I don't want to stop here, so I'm going to make sure there's two plots. I'm going to make sure there's this. I want to make sure there's that. Oh, well, you know, I'm alternating between this, per, this, this voice and that voice, so I need to make sure they both have whole things, and they just sort of inflate, over-inflate everything. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help. It doesn't matter. But um, that's, the, those options are, are things that happen, but they're not my, they're not my answer to this question. For me, as somebody who edits more romance novels than anything else, the number one problem people run into when writing a romance novel, and I don't care whether we're talking about a hetero romance novel, an LGBTQ plus romance novel, uh, a polyamorous novel, uh, an ace or arrow novel, doesn't matter. The, The big problem people face is people suck at writing romance they they're they're okay with sex. They're okay with physical intimacy. They're okay with, you know, holding hands and kissing scenes maybe. But the minute we get into feelings, the minute we get into like how this character expresses their love or connection with this other character, uh the wheels come off the apple cart because they don't I don't know if okay. Okay, I'm going to scale this back for a minute cuz I don't want to get yelled at. Um, I don't know if they've never been in love and they're trying to guess at it in fiction. That's where I was originally going to go with that sentence, but that's a bold claim. And while I'm willing to go to Thunderdome and fight that out, uh, I I can't say for certain it's a universal truth. So what I will say is this. They don't stop and think about the emotional development or the progression of emotion in the course of falling in love. Which is a really big deal when you're writing a romance novel because it isn't just a light switch. It isn't. It, it's not just, oh, that person bought me a coffee. I will live with them for a thousand years. It, it's not. Otherwise, I'd be buying loads more people coffee. The, it's, it's a progression. It's a, it's a combination of efforts iterated upon and developed over time in lots of different ways to build a composite idea in order to suggest that feelings have been birthed and developed organically as a response to perception. Somebody somewhere is going to say, Hey, John, can you say that again slower? And I can't, but what I can do is say it differently and clearer. Character A falls in love with character B. When character A sees B doing things or expressing themselves, in a way that makes character A react in ways that make character A feel closer to character B and vice versa. So here's me and here's you. I'm, you know, you and I are hanging out. We're just doing whatevs. And you you talk about, oh, you know, I'm really frustrated because... After Chad, I have to do all this laundry. Well, if I get up and I start, you know, just doing some of your laundry for you or, you know, like I, while we're just hanging out, I I start washing some dishes because they're just sitting there because I know it'll make your life easier. That might give you a moment to go, wow, that's really thoughtful. Or if you mention like, oh, John, tomorrow's my birthday and it's a throwaway thing. It's not even, maybe maybe it's something more subtle than that. Maybe it's just, man, I hope nobody forgets my birthday this week. It, It sucked. My last birthday last week sucked. Or, or whatever, and then all of a sudden I come around and go, hey, happy birthday, here's the thing. It's some action I've taken in response to something you did, and your view of my action, whatever it is, has made you or encouraged you to feel differently than that moment you felt before I did the action or before you viewed it or judged it. Misunderstanding that, I think is the big reason a lot of romance novels aren't very good because they don't develop those relationships. They think it takes too long. They think it's boring. It's not as much fun as when the pants come off. It's not as descriptive. You just can't call it hot and move on. You know, you can't have everybody just throw their head back and laugh. Ha 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 ha. And then, oh my God, I love you. Because it's boring. It takes time to develop a relationship between two made-up people when you control every aspect of each person. So you have to sit there and pick and choose. Okay, I'm going to have the character this, and the response is this, and the worldview is that. You know, A does this to B, so A feels this. B does this to A, so B feels that. And then as a response, what are the reactions? Would you like a food metaphor? Here's a food metaphor. I heat up my pan. I put the meat in the pan. It cooks. When the the Maillard reaction has sufficiently happened, I'm able to flip the meat over because the proteins and the fat and everything on one side has cooked to make sure this thing is no longer sticking to my pan. It's a reaction to the introduction of heat. And I flip it, and then it moves on, and the reaction continues. And my response to, oh God, it's burning, or oh no, it still needs more time, is my reaction to its reaction to the heat. And it becomes this domino effect of all these different things stacked up together. People don't think that through when they're shaping and framing a romance. That it's not these, you know, tick a box like we're doing a pre-flight check for a plane. You know, check the windows, check the fuel, check the mirrors, check the belts, check the this, check the that. Like, here's a meet-cute, here's a date, here's a this, here's a that. But that romance is more dynamic. It's more malleable. It's more motile. And it's about bending and yielding and changing and reflecting each other and mirroring and revealing things about people because in the end, it's all revealing everything about the author. And it's all a series of reactions. That's what sings romance novels. I really, really, really one day want to do a bigger, deeper dive in a romance stream. But here's, here's a fun fact. It's really hard to get romance authors to sit and watch a stream or a YouTube video. I'm not sure why. I I don't know. But it's really frustrating. But yes, I would love to dive way deep again into romance. Be awesome. All right, on we go. More questions? How does romance differ from erotica? I'm thinking about those authors you mentioned who seem to prefer the non-romance parts of writing a romance. Would they be happier if they wrote erotica? Um, maybe. Maybe they would be happier. So romance differs from erotica in that erotica focuses on the more um, explicit physical intimacy, the the, the more... Graphic depictions of sex, the the more active engagement with sexual tension and sexual relief and also there's less of a development in the uh, abstract side of romance. It's not so much, oh, here are the 15 things done over the course of the book that make me love you and then, oh, by the way, we're going to go be physically intimate with each other. It's more condensed and because erotica tends to deal more with the uh the sexually explicit or the titillation or the seductive element as opposed to the romantic element though there to be fair there is a romantic undercurrent to all of those things but because the romance novel tends to tends to prioritize relationship development and uses physical intimacy as an indicator of progress or a reward, whereas erotica prioritizes sort of the inverse, where erotica prioritizes intimacy and interaction and seduction and uses emotional development as sort of a plateau or reward. Put another way, uh, a romance novel is all about liking each other. Then occasionally we kiss, hold hands, or do things on each other. Whereas erotica is all about what we're doing to each other. And then periodically, because these things are happening, we check in with feelings. I do think a lot of romance authors should lean more into erotica. There's a lot of social stigma there. There's, there's that strange, not wanting to admit that they like bodies or that they like their body or that they enjoy pleasure and feeling good, that they don't want to be seen as, you know, pearl clutching and, and, oh my God, they mentioned the boobs or something like we have bodies. Some of us like our bodies more than others. Some of us don't like our bodies. Some of us feel our bodies should be different in some way, shape or form, but Bodies are a universal thing among mankind, humankind. And dealing with bodies and dealing with the pleasure of bodies is something many people, not everyone, but many people are interested in. Erotica explores that space. I think some romance authors would be happier if they wrote erotica, if they could just get over that sort of weird Victorian sense of propriety. I really think that's what holds a lot of romance authors back. They would write fuck books if they could, but they just don't want somebody like in their book, in their PTA to be like, Oh my God. Oh my God. They wrote a story where they did a thing with their mouth. How dare they? It, it's not that it, it it's fine. Like who gives a shit? Yes. They did a thing. They didn't even do the thing. They made up a character who did a made up thing with a made up person. But they thought, they had that thought. You know, who gives a shit? But yeah, I do think some romance authors would be happier if they dabbled more in erotica. I do think some erotica, I can think of one erotica writer in particular, not a client, but one erotica writer in particular who I think would be excellent writing romance. Absolutely stellar. But uh, just not what they're interested in. That's okay. I will continue to, you know, wear them down over time. Because I think they'd be really, really good at it. But they're really happy writing Erotica. Good for them. Other questions? No, you're very welcome. You're very, very welcome. Shall we keep going? Yeah, let's keep going. Question ten. Super interesting to me how other writers. No, it's not. It's not question ten. I'm reading a comment. Super interesting to me how other writers view and approach things like this. It is really interesting. Um, I wish more writers would spend time and space talking about that. I don't think. I don't think it's that they haven't thought about it. I'm sure they've stopped and thought about it. I just don't think they've decided that those thoughts are worth sharing. Like, who's going to care? Loads of people will care. Uh, You just have to say so. But I love these discussions. I love this thinking about it. I love this sort of like, hey, why do you write the thing you write? And why do you write it the way you write it? That's really interesting to me because it reveals something about them, whether they mean it to or not. And it's not like, I've discovered a secret. Aha, I know something you don't. Yeah. It's, it's more like, I've learned something and I can connect more with you. That really excites me. That's really interesting. Because sometimes when you read an author's work, you learn something about them that they would not otherwise have an outlet for. Like, oh, I learned this about your nature or character or temperament because you wrote a certain way, but that's not something you've ever expressed outside of those books. It's really cool. I like it a lot. Here comes question 10 now. Question 10. Why are we still fighting over show versus tell? Because social media exists. That's, the, that's, the, that's just the true answer. Show versus tell is a dumb fight. It's a dumb fight for children. It's a playground fight. It's meaningless. Because the terms are so abstract and so often so poorly defined and devoid of context, that they become these arbitrary battle lines. And instead, they're not battle lines. They're just two different tools for relaying information to a reader who, without them, doesn't know what to think in their brain. The debate for show versus tell has some nuance to it. There's some depth to it. What it says about you, if you're a writer who primarily tells more than shows, sets up a certain kind of writing, a certain kind of expression of voice, that can be a you know, kind of a tough thing to iron out and a tough thing to deal with and change because it has to do with how you view the reader and how you view the dispensation of information and, and the pacing by which you do it and how you're viewing the image in your head and how you're relaying it or how you think you need to get that information across to somebody else. There's a lot of crunchy shit in there to kind of work through and figure out. And we boil it all down to show versus tell because to cover it with any nuance is difficult. And social media hates nuance the way I hate peas and mayonnaise. So yeah, let's just, let's just make a label and, and scream it at things. And showing is for some people too slow, too tedious, too broad, too vague to insert thing here and we fight about it trying to say that one side's better than the other it it, no sometimes we're going to show sometimes we're going to tell and i hate to tell you this sometimes we're going to do both in the same sentence because it's the best way of putting the image in the reader's head in a way that not only gives them a picture and informs them but also provides them with some kind of emotional context or possibility of reaction. But we keep fighting about it, and we keep saying, oh, do this, don't do that, without really enough depth, without really enough examples, without really enough detail, because having the fight on social media gives us something to do. It doesn't give us something good to do. It doesn't help, you know, make the world a better, happier, shinier place. It doesn't help feed starving children, protect those being oppressed by genocide. It doesn't unmarginalize marginalized communities. It's just a stupid fucking argument between people who are not seeing bigger, broader pictures. It's a dumb playground fight. But we do it because that's what social media trains us to do. Boil everything down, strip out the context, kill the nuance argue about stuff and try to be right in some kind of weird power dynamic hierarchy. And that's why we're still fighting about it. Shell versus tell are two different tools. Hammer versus wrench. Go ahead, which one's better? Go ahead. Fine. You think I'm I'm doing apples to oranges instead of apples to apples? Slotted screwdriver versus Phillips head screwdriver. Which one's better? Go ahead, I'll wait. It's, it's not about better. It's not even about which is the best tool to always use in certain situations because all those situations are not universal. It's about what, situ- what, what do you use here in this moment? What was your thinking behind saying it like this? Not in a shaming way, not like a, what were you thinking? But more like, why did you do that? Explain it to me. I'm curious. Walk me through your thought process. Why is this the way you went? You could have gone that way. You could have gone this other way. We could build another way. Why that one? That's the more interesting discussion point. That's the more interesting topic. That's the the better direction to go here. How deeply did you dive into yourself to get that idea across? Or did you just slap the keys until the words came out? Again, social media kills nuance, and I'm talking waist-deep nuance at at minimum. But, yeah, we only fight about it because social media primes us to. On we go. Question 11. Why are so many self-publishing authors talking about how self-publishing feels like defeat? Okay, do you want the kind answer... Or the answer I gave the minute I saw this question for the first time? I'm going to give you both, just because. The answer, the snap answer, when the question came in, and I'm like, oh, that's a great question for chat. Here's my answer, is this. Because they're primed to condition that, only one kind of publishing, traditional publishing, is, is right and good, and that if they have to do something other than that, they must have failed because they have a very narrow-minded, bootlicking view not only of publishing, but capitalism as a whole. That's the, that's the snap answer. Notice how many boxes it ticks in the, in the John typical answer for publishing. Here's a more detailed, caring answer. Because they put blinders on and they decided that there was only one way that it would be good enough for them to validate themselves to the degree they wanted. And when that didn't happen, they were forced, I'm making air quotes, forced to do it this other way because they had so narrowly defined the parameter for success and built such a pedestal way up super high. And of course, they made it so high and so small and so difficult to accomplish that they were more likely, no matter how well they did, unlikely to get that one in a bajillion success that they held out for. They made it hard on themselves. So anything else that isn't that one exact thing way up on that pedestal must therefore be defeat. It's an all or nothing way of thinking because they put blinders on, because they bought in unquestioningly to this idea of there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, and it's a binary. And anything else is weird and uncomfortable, so let's not deal with it. Let's try to make it that binary as much as possible. They don't have to do that. It doesn't have to be that way. But you, I, I watched all week on Twitter people like, well, I guess I have to self-publish now. It just feel, I got rejected again for the 79th time. It really feels like I failed. Yeah, I guess maybe you did if that's the only way you're going to see yourself as good enough. You still get to tell your story. Yes, you have to do a different amount of work now, but you still get to tell your story. Nobody is saying, stop and give up. You are interpreting the situation that way. Oh, I didn't, I didn't hit the target 500 meters looking over my shoulder with a mirror in a hurricane. I didn't make the gatekeepers happy. I must therefore suck. What an uncomfortable and unpleasant way to view life. I'm sorry. That just sucks. I, I, I hate that you have to go through that feeling because I spent way too many years trying to make other people happy before I made myself happy. So I, I know what that space feels like. I still do it it sucks but self-publishing isn't a defeat unless we accept that there's a limited number of ways and opportunities for victory i'm making air quotes and there's not and bigger picture what is that saying to your readership Oh, don't do me any favors and buy my book. I mean, I guess, you know how like shitty and manipulative that is. That's like bad, abusive boyfriend behavior. Oh, don't do me any favors. Let me just murder myself over here. while you, I guess maybe buy my book if you want. Golly gee, here's the link to buy my book. Like, um, why are you being an asshole about this? It it's, it's okay. Self-publishing isn't the little, you know, snot-nosed kid running along behind us. It's not the annoying little brother or something. It's, it's not the, I guess I'll just go, you know, eat worms as opposed to dinner. Like it's, it's not a, it's not a less than position unless you want to reinforce all that gatekeeping and reinforce all that corporationism and reinforce all that capitalism and reinforce all that bullshit. That has been actively cooking the planet, reducing stories in the world, eliminating art over time, making it harder for marginalized people to have a voice, making it harder for people to have a seat at the table of development and expression. If you want to reinforce all those things, then yeah, self-publishing sure does feel like defeat there, buddy. Or, Or maybe it's just a different way of getting our stuff out into the world. I'm going to tell you, here's a fun fact. Fun fact, Um, if we step away from books just for a hot second and we go back and we look at like all those famous things we point to, like those famous paintings and those statues and and those buildings people built, they're all self-published. Like they just made those things. Yes, they had patrons. People supported them. Sure. But um, they made those things themselves and you idolize them. Why why can't you do that for yourself? Like I'm sorry you didn't get the one in a million high on a pedestal shot. I really am. But you can still you you can still publish your work. Oh, they don't have chocolate ice cream. I can never again have ice cream. Nah man, they got like seven hundred other flavors. Just make a different choice. It's okay, it's gonna be fine. Don't see it as defeat. Just see it as a different thing you could do. Unless you really want to hold fast to that idea that there's only one good way and everything else sucks. Because that's just... I mean, go be miserable then. Go ahead. But you're doing that yourself. Nobody else thinks that. Question 12. Could a hashtag writer's life... uh, It should be writer's lift. That's a typo on my part. My bad. Could a hashtag writers lift ever really work? No. Nope. Couldn't work. Here's why. So the hashtag writers lift is the idea that you're supposed to promote. Like, look at these other writers. They're doing stuff. Um, the majority of people who interact with that hashtag are also writers. And um, it's not reaching a, a growing audience. Because it's one thing if it's just writers talking to writers. There's a closed number of humans. There's a certain finite number of humans using social media on any given moment, using that hashtag in particular. So you're not reaching everybody on the other end of this Venn diagram, the big pool of of people who could buy the book. You're reaching some people, sure, absolutely, that's great. But it's not really going to do what you think it's going to do, it's going to feel like it does because, hey, I'm, I'm spreading the word about writers. This is great. But you're spreading the word about writers to other writers who arguably aren't incentivized to continue the chain of support because it's a limited number of people and a limited number of opportunities. And that's not a gatekeeping thing. It's just if there's only 10 of us, and we're all lifting each other up. Eventually all 10 of us will have heard of all the other nine of us. And uh, cause we've already heard about ourselves and um, it won't make a difference after that. Writer's lifts are nice cause they stroke the ego. They don't accomplish anything in the, in the, in like the bigger picture. Like they don't help you get past the marketing hurdle. They don't introduce you to new, maybe on some degree they will introduce you to a few new readers But it's not going to be this big giant thing unless like you're getting a lift from a substantially larger platform, which typically aren't the people who interact with that hashtag in the first place. There's really something to think about here in the psychology of what sort of people with what size readership are using these hashtags and why don't, if they really work and if they really are about promoting writers, why aren't big name giant people the first and loudest people to use them? I wonder why that is. I wonder if anyone has ever stopped to consider that. I wonder if that's a conversation that we should be having way more often. Because again, the other part of this is... It keeps us on social media. It keeps us away from doing other things that could help us, like writing more, like coming up with a challenging, a, a challenge to the status quo marketing strategy. It keeps us from improving ourselves. It keeps us from doing anything other than staying on the platform, scrolling on our phones, getting the immediate dopamine hit, and then feeling dissatisfied later. All those hashtags, just like all those questions, like, oh my God, do you write like, um, uh, Do you ever write dreams in your book? All that vapid, vacuous, pointless stuff just keeps us here and gives us the impression that we're passing time, the impression that we're doing something writerly, when the reality is that the stuff that really makes a difference for us is not as glamorous and not as fun. No, I don't think a hashtag writer's lift will ever work. And lastly, we wrap up with question 13. Give me three ideas to focus on so I can get my book done and published in 2024. Okay, I got you. Here we go. Item number one. A book is only a set of chapters, and chapters can be any size. So figure out where you're at in your draft. Right now, figure it out. What are the events that need to happen if we were to do one event per chapter between wherever you're at and the end of the book? That's going to tell you roughly the number of chapters you need to do. Now, maybe if you're sitting here, that number is huge. Okay, we'll deal with that in a minute. But at least now we have a number. Now it doesn't feel like, oh my God, I don't know how the story ends. All of a sudden, we start creating boundaries and we start creating a roadmap. So step number one, we can just do this one event at a time, one chapter at a time. That's reasonable. The sub, like the, corollary, the corollary to that, I never get that word out right the first time. The The little thing to pay attention to is that chapters can be any size. And they can be different sizes from each other. So it's not like, oh my God, I have five chapters. Yeah, they, one of those chapters could be like a sentence, any size. Doesn't matter. On we go. That's idea number one. Idea number two. It, at the time I'm recording this is February. It is, in fact, the 6th of February. We have plenty of days and weeks between now and the end of the year. If you are self-publishing this book and the person asking this question was self-published or is going to self-publish, I should say, you have until December 30th to finish this thing and get it up in the world. Now, we can roll that time back a little bit and say, well, you got to get a cover. You got to get it edited. So let's say you have until November 30th to finish writing. It's February 6th. There's plenty of time. Instead of focusing on days and creating some kind of weird scarcity or panic about, oh my God, I only, have these so, I only have this many days. I haven't been writing an X number of days and I only have Y number of days left. Rather than focus on like these very small numbers that become very, very urgent or panicked, what I want you to focus on is what you've done and ask yourself one question. Without judging it, here's item number two. What did I do today to help my book get closer to finished? Now, sometimes, for any number of reasons, in or out of your control, that answer is going to be, I couldn't get anything done. I had to work a double at my day job. I had to, you know, I got sick. My kids got sick. There was no internet access. The power went out. I had to go buy a washing machine or a million, a million other reasons, Right. Sometimes, and you're going to have to be okay with this, but sometimes that answer is going to be, I unfortunately could not get anything done. And other days, also unfortunately, and people beat themselves up about it, the amount of something they got done doesn't seem to be, air quotes, enough. As if there's some magic quantity you're supposed to be doing. Any progress is good progress. Now, yes, you gave yourself a goal, I want to be done and published, in 2024, and we used that previous example of, I need this book written and done by November 30th so I can get a cover and get it edited and get it out. Okay, cool. Still plenty of time. And the longer you wait, the more you're going to have to do in a shorter window of time. And some people, despite all their complaints, live for that urgency. They feel motivated by it. And that's, that's fine. I don't think for me that's a healthy way to proceed, but some people do, and that's okay. The point here, though, is you have time and ask yourself, what can I do every day to make progress on this thing? Because it's not always going to be the same thing. Sometimes it's going to be I have to write. Other days it's going to be I need to figure out my my pitch. Other days it's going to be how do I write you know, author acknowledgments or something. There's a different thing sometimes, but there's always something to do until there isn't. And the third thing, this one gets a little tricky, but I I saved it for last for a reason. Everything you need to do is a decision you can make. So those decisions about what scenes go in what chapters, the decision about what scenes there are or aren't, the decisions about what the characters do, the decisions about what the reader sees in their head when they read this sentence. Those are decisions you can make. And too often writers get bogged down and oh my god, did I I, I, I I could say that differently. I could I could do that right. I could change this. I could I could say it something else. Sure, we could change a thing a billion times. But we don't have to. You can. Totally can but you don't have to. One of the greatest assets, one of the greatest tools you can develop, and some people take forever to develop this and other people get it right away and that's fine, but one of the greatest tools is the confidence that you wrote a thing, whatever it is, and it's, I'm going to use a phrase and it's going to freak some people out, it's okay. Not it's okay enough and it could be better, but we're just settling for this. That's how a lot of people take it. I mean, more like, it's okay. This is fine. You are confident in it. And a lot of people really struggle to develop that confidence. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to try and write a thing that you think will make other people happy. You don't have to sit down and try to write a thing to prove to other people that you are good enough. You don't. You just don't. I know it sometimes it just feels that way, but you don't have to. All you need to do is write a thing that you're satisfied with. And if the issue still comes up, the bigger question is, why do I not let myself be satisfied? Which is more of a therapy thing than a writing coach thing, frankly, but it's still something to like spend time with and sit with. All these steps, all these words, all these chapters, I don't care how many there are, all these scenes, all these ideas, they're decisions you can make. You have complete control over this. One of the big complaints I hear about writing from loads of different writers is that they feel like it's out of their control. It feels like they just, they're just they at the whim of some trope or some bullshit or some shit they read on the internet. And And no, it's just not. It's, I promise it's just not, you have absolute control over this. You get to decide everything. And it's not like you need to make 55 decisions all at once. You make one decision at a time, that sentence, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. And it's okay. Okay. Depending on where you're at in your writing journey, it might not be possible for you to get the book done and published in 2024. Maybe. It's, I mean, it's a thing that could happen, but if you were, let's say, just starting today, it's going to take some amount of work and effort to be done and published in 2024. And a lot of things in your control need to happen, and a few things out of your control need to happen. But if you are not starting from, you know, nothing right this second, this is a doable thing. It just requires some discipline and some effort, both of which are things, uh, toggleable, doable, manageable by making decisions. One decision at a time, get it down, go to the next, get it down, go to the next, get it down, go to the next over and over and over until you're done. And it's not like it needs to be perfect until we go to the next one, just get it, get it down, confident, move to the next. We can always go back and fix it later. Just get it down. I know for some people that's really difficult to accept because it feels like it's a poor reflection on them or that it's messy or that it's hard. But that's that's part of what you have to do. You could spend all your time and care, focusing, hyper focusing, and constantly going over all that ground again and again and again, writing and rewriting and re re rewriting and re 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 rewriting. You totally could, and it will slow you down, and you'll get frustrated, and you'll be more likely to get angry and get and give up. But that's a thing you did of your own control. It didn't need to be perfect. Nobody needed it to be perfect. Other people can't appreciate that perfect the way you think they can. They want something that puts a movie in their brain. And whether that movie is, you know, top of the line, Kubrickianly, you know, developed, or whether that movie is just like a movie of the week soap opera, they won't necessarily have the deep appreciation for it right away. Your job is just to put a movie there. And sometimes it's going to be a thing where we masterfully control the camera and move everything around and we use all the cool technology. And other times we're just on our phone filming some dumb shit, metaphorically. These are decisions you can make. And while they're important, it's not like the fate of the free fucking world hangs on them. So sometimes just make a decision about the goddamn couch in the room and move on. But these are things under your control. Focus on those three things and you will make progress this year with your book. I promise. Now we're about to get out of here. Any questions from anybody about anything else? We will go to the outro and get out of here because I've been talking 92 minutes, which is crazy. Cause it sure didn't feel it. There were ad breaks in there. It was wild. Oh, you want to go to the outro? Should we get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. I want to thank each and every single one of you for watching, for checking this out. Uh, thanks for, thanks for, you know, the two of you who sent me uh, messages before. Hey, don't forget to press the audio button. Cause the audio button is audioing. And, uh, thanks. Just thanks for being here. Thanks for checking this out. Thanks for letting me talk about writing and goals and setting and social media and and romance and all that different stuff. Thank you. Um, I hope I hope it helped you. I hope this would made a difference. Um, I hope it does. I truly do. If you are looking for more from me, I will be right back here in your eyes and in your ears uh, Thursday, two days from now, uh, at seven p.m. Eastern, talking about what to do with your book once you're done writing it. Uh, That's a combination of just the next steps in production, but also mostly marketing and sales. So definitely something to check out if that's what you're looking for help with or feeling particularly stymied by. Uh, Beyond that, you can uh, head over wherever you get podcasts and go check out uh, John Helps You Write Better. Just search for it wherever you get podcasts. And, um, if you want help with what you're writing, whatever that might be, head over to com, And I would be super happy to help you just go book an appointment and uh, the, it's free. Um, and I'll be happy to help anytime. So thanks for being here. All power to all people. I will talk to you very, very soon. I will see some of you guys in the very, very near future for more. See ya. Okay, audio people. This one's just for you. Yeah, I did it. Okay, long day. Oh, man. A lot of good questions. Thank you so much. Um, I will talk to you tomorrow for even more podcasty goodness. All right.